and that you see him to be your very present help in time of need. Thank you, Hannah, and thank you, Cindy, for that. If you take your Bibles and turn to Ezekiel chapter 24, Ezekiel chapter 24. In 1956, Jim Elliott wanted to reach the Aka Indians in Ecuador. The Aka's were an unreached tribe that had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after the discovery of where the Aka's lived, Jim and four other missionaries entered into the Aka territory. And after a friendly contact with three members of that tribe, Jim Elliott and the four other missionaries were speared to death by the Aukas. Following that tragedy, Jim's wife, Elizabeth, along with her 10-month-old daughter, Valerie, they didn't leave. Rather, they stayed and sought to continue the plan to reach out to the Aka Indians. And through God's providence, Elizabeth Elliot met two Aka women, and they ended up living with Elizabeth for a year. Elizabeth was then able to go and, and live with the Aka tribe, that very tribe that had killed her husband and the other missionaries. And through Elizabeth's ministry, many of the Aukas became followers of Jesus Christ. And a church was planted among the Aka Indians. Elizabeth Elliot is an illustration of how a Christian is to handle tragedy. How to deal with tragedy. She responded the way that she did because... She had a biblical theology of suffering. She understood what the Bible teaches about suffering. She didn't run. She didn't give up. She didn't crawl up on a shelf for the rest of her life. She had a proper theology and understanding of suffering. So how do we handle the news that a loved one has died? Or when tragedy strikes to our life. Many of you here this morning, you have faced the death of a loved one. Some even recently. Some, perhaps it was longer ago, but even that pain still is in your struggle today. Many here this morning, you have faced tragedy. Well, how do we deal with this? How do we respond with the proper theology of suffering. How do we say, even in the midst of suffering, it is well with my soul? Let's look to Scripture this morning, and let's look at the life of Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 24. Ezekiel became a, a prophet in Babylon. In fact, he was the first prophet to receive the call to prophesy while outside of Israel. He was one of the exiles that had been deported by Nebuchadnezzar, and Ezekiel's first responsibility as a prophet was to prepare God's people who were exiled to, in, in Babylon, to prepare them for the final destruction 
of Jerusalem that was to come. But the people believed that Jerusalem was indestructible. They saw it to be God's sacred city. Jerusalem was the the delight of their eyes. It was the apple of their eye. The people had put their hope in Jerusalem. In fact, they put their focus on a physical kingdom. Their focus was on a physical city, and they had taken their eyes off of God. And Ezekiel had a difficult message to preach because he warned the people that Jerusalem would fall, that it would be destroyed. But the people didn't take him seriously. They didn't want to listen to that message. They didn't want to hear that. So Ezekiel's message was not a popular message. It would have been unlikely that people, as they left church to go to the cafeteria, it would have been unlikely that they would come up to him after he preached and they thanked him for his great sermon that morning. He had a difficult ministry. He had a a lonely ministry. And even though he had a difficult ministry, Ezekiel was a faithful prophet faithful to God and to his word. Whatever God asked him to do, he would do it. In fact, he did many things for God that would have been outside anyone's comfort zone. He had a a challenging and a hard ministry to bear the burden of the Lord and to speak the truth. Yet he was faithful. In the midst of this difficult ministry... Ezekiel had a wonderful wife that he loved deeply. We know this because the Bible says that she was the delight of his eyes. No doubt she was a a great encouragement to him, that she was a a great blessing to him. She was the love of his life. And since he had especially such a lonely and unpopular ministry, I would suppose that she was his closest friend and closest supporter. Then one day, a day that Ezekiel would never forget, God comes to Ezekiel and says, Ezekiel, with one blow, I am going to take away the delight of your eyes. Your wife is going to die. I don't know about you, but can you imagine what Ezekiel may have said? He hears this message. Can you imagine what the response would be? Lord, you're saying my wife is going to die? Lord, I'll do anything for you. I'll fight for your great name. I'll be a fool for you. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'll bear any ridicule, serve anywhere. But Lord, spare me this. Don't take my wife. And the Lord said, Ezekiel, you are a sign for Israel. Soon messengers will come and they will tell the people that Jerusalem has been destroyed and everything that they idolized will be gone. The apple of their eye, Jerusalem, will be gone. And they will not be allowed to cry. They'll not be allowed to weep. 
They'll not be allowed to mourn, but only groan under my judgment because they sinned against me, and they will know that I am the Lord God. And that night, Ezekiel's wife, the delight of his eyes, his encourager, his best friend, the love of his life, she suddenly died. The delight of his eyes was gone. Look in verse 15 of Ezekiel 24. Verse 15, And the Lord, came, of the, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. But you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently, make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban, and put your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache. And do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded. If I were to give a title to this message, I would call it, With One Blow. With one blow, Ezekiel's wife, the delight of his eyes, was gone. And maybe there's someone here this morning, and God has taken away the delight of your eyes. Perhaps it's a loved one. Perhaps it's a dream that you had. Perhaps it's a a hope that you had. Perhaps it's a plan, something you had invested in that you thought was of the Lord. And it's been taken away. With one blow, somehow, all of a sudden, you find your life has been changed. With one blow, your world has been turned upside down. With one blow. Some event, some, something's happened. My prayer this morning is that, is that you would be encouraged from the Word of God. I want you to know that God's purpose in your suffering may be for something that is far greater than you can see this morning. You see, we're, we're fighting against an unbiblical version of Christianity today. A version that does not include a theology of suffering. In this unbiblical version of Christianity, the ideal Christian life is characterized by good health and material blessings, no difficult relationships, and no problems. In fact, this version of Christianity would suggest that if you're saved and you're experiencing, if you're saved, you should be experiencing God's best, and that's defined by material blessing and good health. Your life should be basically trouble-free. Anybody have a problem with that this morning? Many Christians, therefore, have been taught that it is their Christian birthright to claim God's promises, promises that will allow me to avoid suffering, promises that will allow me to avoid disappointment, promises that will allow me to avoid hardship. It's my birthright as a Christian. And that's being taught in churches today by very popular television preachers. This unbiblical version of Christianity would say, if you're saved and if you're right with God, then isn't the ultimate goal 
that God has for you, isn't it for you to be happy? I mean, if you're right with God, shouldn't you only experience the full blessings of God? Which means that you should have wealth and you should have health. You should have no problems. The devil will whisper to you the same thing he whispered to Eve. God's holding out on you. And perhaps there's some people here, you've listened to that. God's holding out on you. He's not giving you the best. If you're suffering, if you've lost a loved one, if you're experiencing a tragedy, if you've experienced hurt, and if you've felt bad, if you're struggling, if you're under persecution, if you're in a, in a crisis, if you happen to have difficult relationships in your life, if you have problems, how can this be God's best for you? I mean, you can't be in God's will if you're suffering because He wants you to be happy. So what do we do when things go bad for us, when we have that mentality? Well, really the only thing we can do is to blame God and to whine and complain because He's not treating us fairly. We're not happy. And the reason we respond that way with that complaint and that whining toward God is because we do not have a biblical theology of suffering. We don't understand what the Bible teaches about going through trials and afflictions. The question we need to settle this morning in order to have a proper theology of suffering is this. Is happiness defined by a life of continual success and health and material blessings and no difficult relationships and no problems? Is that life the life that brings the most glory to God? And if you fall short... If you are suffering, if you're hurting, if you're not experiencing the success and the health, the material blessings, if you're in a difficult relationship, if you have problems, if with one blow a crisis has come into your life, does that mean that you're only an inferior Christian? Does that mean that you're only a second-class Christian? Less than what best could be for you? Perhaps there's someone here this morning and you're in a difficult place. You're hurting. You're suffering. Rather than turning your suffering into bitterness, realize that in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your difficulty, you may well be right in the center of God's very best for you. And even in that place, you can know joy and you can know happiness defined by God's definition of happiness. You can know an unspeakable joy that still fills your life. Well, how can I say that? Because of a proper theology of suffering found in the Word of God and we can see it demonstrated for us in the life of Ezekiel. In verse 16, I want us to see, first of all, that with one blow, God uses suffering to empty me of me. 
With one blow, God uses suffering to empty me of me. Verse 16, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. Can you imagine what it was like for Ezekiel as he thought about what what he's going to say to his wife? Can you imagine? Maybe after hearing this word from God, maybe he went home and he, he asked her, Honey, can we go for a walk? I need to talk to you. Then maybe he said something like, Sweetheart, this morning I heard the hardest thing I've ever heard. And then as he gathers his strength and he he says, Darling, God demands that you must die. I wonder what she said. It would not surprise me if she said, Ezekiel, I believe that everything that you've preached is true. It's all about God. It's not about me. I don't know that she said that. She could have said something like, don't weep for me. God will use me as the proof of all that you've preached. Press on, Ezekiel. Press on. Rejoice, Ezekiel. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't falter. We'll see each other again. And then that night she dies. God had a plan. And even though Ezekiel was a faithful prophet and did whatever God asked him to do, God still had to empty Ezekiel of himself. God had a purpose. In that suffering that Ezekiel was supposed to endure, that somehow God wanted to do something that was far bigger than Ezekiel could see. With one blow, God used suffering to empty Ezekiel of everything in his life. The unbiblical version of Christianity that we spoke of earlier would say, if you're saved and if you're right with God, then isn't the ultimate goal of God that he has for you, isn't it for you to be happy? Well, you see, a proper theology of suffering understands that, yes, God wants me to be happy, but it is a happiness that is rooted in a joy that only comes through holiness and through living a holy life. It's beyond the world's understanding of happiness and pleasure. It's a depth of joy that comes from living a life that glorifies God. Because it fulfills what I've been created for. I'm created to be in communion with God, to worship Him, to live a life that brings Him glory. And that's found in holiness. James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Hold your finger there in Ezekiel and and turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter. Some have called it the hall of faith. 
We love Hebrews 11 because it lists our heroes, those who had victory in their life. They walked in faith and they saw the great promises of God fulfilled. These are people that we want to imitate. We want that kind of life that has all the victories. Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. And pick up with me in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness and obtained promises and shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Semicolon. My copy of Scripture has a semicolon, which hers has maybe it's a comma. Mine has a semicolon. It's still talking about people of great faith. People that we are to celebrate. People that we should want to imitate. <laughs> and others were tortured. Not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having obtained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. I know of some folks who believe that God gave them a promise of healing or a promise of, of something restored and that promise did not come true and now they are bitter towards God. They've put their life up on a shelf because in their eyes, God did not do what they believed that he had promised them to do. Here are people at the end of Hebrews 11 who didn't receive the same victory the way we would define it. Verse 39 says they didn't receive the promise. What was wrong with these people? Where is their faith? The Bible says there was nothing wrong with their faith. Their faith was just fine. In fact, they are listed in the hall of faith. But they didn't receive the promise because it's not about a promise. It's not about what I get from a promise. Verse 40 says there is something better. There's, there is, and that is that for God is, is to be glorified in my life even if I don't receive the promise. Someone may ask, are you saying that we're not to believe in the promises of God? Of course we're to believe in the promise of God. 2 Corinthians 1 says that for as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. But it's not about what I can get out of a promise. It's all about the glory that God can get through my life. With one blow, God uses suffering to empty me of me. Secondly, I want us to see, as we go back to Ezekiel 24, and look at verse 21. Secondly, with one blow, 
God uses suffering to empower his message. God uses suffering to empower his message. People heard that Ezekiel's wife had died. And they made their way to his house to mourn with him. But when they arrived, they were puzzled. He wasn't doing the the things that people would normally do when uh, a spouse dies like this. Usually when someone died, those who were grieving would, would take off their turban and take off their sandals. They would cover the lower part of their face. They would eat special food. They would lament. They would weep. And he wasn't doing any of these things. Yet they could see that he was in deep grief. And everyone was surprised. They were, they were puzzled. This wasn't normal. This wasn't how people behaved at a time such as this. And so they said in verse 19, they said, Won't you tell us what these things have to do with us? They knew there was supposed to be a message for them in this. And then verse 21, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the desire of your eyes, and the delight of your soul, and your sons and your daughters whom you have left behind will fall by the sword. In other words, Jerusalem would fall. And just as Ezekiel had lost the delight of his eyes, so they would lose the delight of their eyes. He had lost the person that he loved, they would lose the city that they loved. History tells us that the day that Ezekiel's wife died was the same day that the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian armies. God wanted to use the death of Ezekiel's wife as an illustration to the people of Israel. Ezekiel, you are a sign for Israel. I'm I'm using you to send a message to them. Through the death of his wife, Ezekiel could then identify with the people when God's judgment came on Jerusalem. I'm sure for Ezekiel there was not any, I told you so. Or didn't I warn you this would happen? No, he spoke out of his own pain. He spoke out of his own grief in love and humility. He knew that they were going through a painful experience because the delight of their eyes was taken away, just as his delight had been taken away. And so with one blow, God used suffering to empower his message with a biblical theology of suffering, instead of bitterness, you realize that you have a testimony. We could go around the room this morning and every one of you could share about things that you've experienced and and suffering you've endured. You have a testimony. You have a testimony of how God has been faithful in your life. You have a story of how God brought you through the storms and is still bringing you through the storms. Many of you this morning, you're trusting God today because you're in the midst of a crisis. You're in the midst of a great disappointment. Maybe God wants you to be able to speak into Nightdale, to the 
neighborhood, to the people, the community, in a way that you could not do it without that testimony. Perhaps God wants you to be on a mission trip or on the mission field to be able to share from your pain, from your experiences of God's faithfulness, to be able to minister His love. Your suffering empowers God's message through you. You have a testimony to share, a testimony that is powerful for the kingdom of God, to bring others to salvation as they hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I read the title of a book. I didn't read the book. I just read the title of the book. And the title was enough to speak volumes to me. And I'm sure the book is good. But the title is, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. And that speaks volumes to me. Don't waste your sorrows. Don't just pray to get out of your suffering. Pray that God will use you in the midst of your suffering. With one blow, God uses suffering to empower His message. The last thing I want us to see is in verse 24 and then verse 27. With one blow, God uses suffering to exalt His name. Verse 24, Thus Ezekiel will be assigned to you according to all that he has done, you will do. When it comes, then you will know what? What does it say? You will know that I am the Lord God. Verse 25, As for you, son of man, will it not be on the day when I take from them their stronghold, the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes, and their heart's delight, their sons and their daughters, that on that day he who escapes will come to you with information for your ears. Verse 27. On that day your mouth will be open to him who escaped, and you will speak and be dumb no longer. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they will know what? They will know that I am the Lord. God uses suffering in our lives to exalt His name. To exalt His name. Because we're a part of something that is bigger than us and what I want for my life. We're a part of something that has to do with the glory of God in the world. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. God desires for His name to be known and proclaimed among the nations. And He might use your suffering to get your attention so you can be a part of proclaiming that greatness of His name. God uses suffering to exalt His name, to glorify His name. You might might remember the story in John chapter 9. When Jesus passed by a, a, a man that was blind from birth, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned or his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. God uses suffering to exalt his name. You might remember the story from John 11 about Lazarus. Mary and Martha had sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. 
But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified in it. God uses suffering to bring glory to his name. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. We need a biblical theology of suffering. God's purpose in our suffering might be for something that is far greater than we can see. Ezekiel's wife died when Jerusalem was taken in 586 B.C. 586. In Daniel chapter 3, we have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And although we can't be absolutely certain about the dates, it is possible that the events of Daniel 3 also took place at or near 586. So you have Ezekiel in Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar as a prophet. His wife dies. Ezekiel responds to what happened to his wife. The way that he obeyed in verse 18 that we looked at, the way that he was assigned to the people, it was an incredible testimony to the people. They watched a man who, who responded to difficulty, who responded to tragedy, who responded to suffering. They watched a man look death in the face and still trust God. They watched a man lose the delight of his eyes and still obey God. It was a testimony that spread throughout the people. And all the people knew of it. And they, they were encouraged to trust God because of Ezekiel's testimony. And it's very possible that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were directly affected by Ezekiel's testimony and his experience. I would suggest to you that, Sh- that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saw the power of God displayed in Ezekiel's life. What man could could do what Ezekiel did except for the power of God? What man could lose the delight of his eyes and respond the way that he did except for the power of God? And the result of it all, just like it says in Ezekiel 24, they now fully knew that God was the Lord God. His testimony, the way that Ezekiel responded was a testimony encouraged others to take a stand. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Verse 15, Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, dragon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a, of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. These men who I believe saw the power of God in Ezekiel's testimony. These men who fully knew that God was the Lord God. These men replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, 
We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18. But even if he does not, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Even if he does not, these men said. These men knew nothing of our modern, unbiblical version of Christianity, which says that it's their birthright to claim God's promises, promises that avoid suffering, promises that avoid disappointment, promises that avoid hardship. Their faith was like those at the end of Hebrews chapter 11. We believe and we know that God can deliver us. He can deliver us, but even If he does not, it's not about the promise. It's not about what I get out of it. There's something bigger. There's something better. It's all about the glory of God. I call you today to be, even if he does not, Christians. Those who will say, let it be known to you that no matter what happens to me, if the delight of my eyes is taken away, no matter what happens, no matter what suffering I may face, I know that God can do anything. And if he doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's all about his glory. It's not about me and what I get. It's not about my prosperity. It's not about my comfort. It's not about my convenience. It's all about the glory of God. And if he chooses for me to suffer, so be it. not about what he does for me or doesn't do for me. I will not serve your gods. I will serve the one true God and him alone no matter what. That is a biblical theology of suffering. I want us to close with one final verse in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Colossians 1 24. There are many examples of the biblical theology of suffering in the New Testament, but I want us just to close with this one verse in Colossians. Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now what does that mean? That when Paul suffers, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. How can any person add to what Christ has done? We know there's nothing lacking in Christ, in his afflictions, what he did on the cross. That he accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished. But here, Paul's suffering fills up Christ's suffering. Not by adding anything to its worth but by extending that message of his sufferings to people who haven't heard about it yet. What's lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they are deficient in worth. What's lacking is that that infinite value of Christ's afflictions are not known to the whole world. That's what's lacking. So how do we fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions? Through your testimony. 
of how God has been faithful to you in your sufferings. You can be more effective in presenting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to a lost world. That's how we fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. Is the world hasn't heard about it, but God wants to use your story and your afflictions to tell that message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered to accomplish salvation for us, and he allows me to suffer so that I might be a part of spreading that salvation through his message. Our willingness to endure hardship, tragedy, affliction, suffering, is a filling up of Christ's affliction because it extends the gospel and makes it visible to a lost world. Notice that Paul says at the beginning of that verse, now I rejoice in my sufferings. The road of suffering is a painful one, but it's not a joyless one. It's painful, but not joyless. In fact, the happiest people in the world that I know are the people who receive God's grace to endure suffering, and they're filled with joy as they extend the sufferings of Christ through their own suffering to a lost world. A few years ago, I was on a a flight returning from a mission trip, and I was talking with a lady by the name of Diane, and she was one of the other members of our mission team. And God had used Diane in a mighty way unusual way on that mission trip. And I asked Diane, Diane, what's it been like for you since your husband died a year ago? And Diane said, Mike, this is her quote, with one blow, God chose to take away the delight of my eyes, my beloved husband. But I have known joy in that God has used my suffering to better enable me to proclaim His greatness to the world. What about you this morning? With one blow, God uses suffering to empty me of me. With one blow, God uses suffering to empower His message. With one blow, God uses suffering to exalt His name. Let's pray together.